What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. Hi, Ina Chadwick here on the last Saturday of the month. What a story. Uh, today's stories, uh, most of them, let's see, one, two, three, four of them were recorded recently. And one of them was recorded, I believe, in 211, maybe 212, at the Westport Arts Center. And uh, all of them have to do with first jobs or jobs that we did when we were younger because we needed the money. The first storyteller is my, always my favorite, Bill Bosch. And the second storyteller is another one of my favorite men, uh, my husband, Richard Epstein. A story that is very touching. Susan Jacobson. The story recorded in 211, I believe. Blake Schneering. And the last story is mine. And uh, it's it, it happened. So why don't we start? And I have little music lead-ups. And thank you for being with me on July is it July 30th, the last Saturday of the month? Um, I th sort of wanted to call this post-independence day because each story for each storyteller brought them a little bit of independence towards their own growth. Next month, uh, August, ooh, you know, stay tuned at the end of the show, I'll figure out what the topic will be, and maybe some of you people will send to What a Story on Facebook or to Ina B. Chadwick at Gmail, a topic for the topic I choose. Thanks a lot. Enjoy. <laughs> Let me take you back many decades. Back then, I was a lifeguard at Holiday Inn. Now, that's a really cush job back then. There's an indoor and an outdoor pool. You work four or five days a week. Uh, one of the best things about it was that normally there weren't very many people in either of the pools. And probably the best thing was the fact that I got all the free food that I wanted. So I could go into the kitchen and I could order fish and chips or a cheeseburger or a steak with mashed potatoes and carrots. And it was provided to me in 10 or 15 minutes. Now in the summertime, the outdoor pool was open. And to be totally honest, it's an easy job because what do lifeguards do? Mainly 
they sit and they watch. And usually there's five or six or 10 people in the pool and you're keeping an eye out. And all the time I worked at the Holiday Inn, I think there was only one little girl who tried to do the diving board and she banged her head and I had to go in and get her. And she went to the hospital and she was fine. But the winter was a little different because in the wintertime, it'd be Thursday, Friday, all day, Saturday, and the pool was open. It was a pretty large pool. And the Holiday Inn was kind of a cool place, too, because they had bands and music on Saturday night. In fact, in addition to being a lifeguard, I had a band. On occasional Saturday nights, my band would start playing at 10 p.m. and we'd play until midnight. And occasionally the manager would come and say, hey, I'll give you another hundred dollars. Play for another hour. And we'd play till one or two. But as a lifeguard, I would sit in the indoor pool and I'd watch folks and people would come down, except the bad time was the winter. In December and January and February, buses would come out of Manhattan upstate New York, where there were several ski areas not too far from Holiday Inn. They would unload these two or three buses. Now, at the time, please remember, I'm 17, 18, perhaps, and these folks who get out of the buses, to me, are grown-ups, meaning they are between 25 and 35 or 40. They would come up on Saturday morning, go to the ski area, ski all day, and then come back to the Holiday Inn, and their main agenda was party. They wanted to have a damn good time. So they would hit the bar, and back in those days, people drank mostly rum and Cokes and wine and volumes and volumes of beer, and then they would hit the pool. So it would get a little crazy, and we'd get a little racy, and there'd be people in there, maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe 30, dependent upon how festive everybody felt. And most nights, it was okay, and I would watch them in their, you know, having fun. But one night, everything got a little bit crazy. And so all these young, you know, libidinous 20, mid-20-year-olds were, you know, having fun in the pool. And one of they loved to do cannonballs and flips off the diving board. And they loved to do chicken fights. So a chicken fight is where you put someone on your shoulders and you encounter another pair of people, usually girls on the shoulders of young men. And they kind of slap and push and laugh and try not to spill their rum and cokes that they're holding in their hand as well and knock the other person over. And it was all going very typically. And I was sitting there. My steak had just arrived. And I figured, okay, they can have fun while I'm having the steak. And the next thing you know, I looked up. And one of the young ladies involved in a chicken fight had lost her top. Where it began or where it ended up, I have no idea. But laughter was occurring all over the place among these 30-odd young people. And before I knew it, her opponent on the other side of the chicken fight lost her top too. So now I have two people and I'm sitting there at 18 years of age thinking, well, this is a very entertaining Saturday night. Let me just watch what happens. And as it ensued, another top came off and another. Suddenly, here goes the bottom of a bathing suit. Before I know it, here are men's bathing suits 
and women's tops and bottoms flying all over the pool area, hanging on the, on the diving board, flipping over onto the side of the pool, and people are going a little crazy. Body parts are jiggling and wriggling and flipping and flopping. Young men are doing handstands in the shallow end, letting their personal American flags kind of dangle there in the pool area. I, I get up because I don't even know what to make of this. At the same time that it's entertaining, I, I look around and I start walking around the pool and what am I to say as a lifeguard? Um, I'm 10 years younger than most of these people and I say things like, hey, or whoa, or in some cases, oh my God, these people are doing cannonballs, jumping off of the, of the diving board. They are wrangling with each other and tickling and laughing. Drinks are flying everywhere. And it was extremely entertaining. Eventually, the manager runs into the pool and says, what is going on here? I said, I have no idea. This is just, it's just happening. These people are all, he said, they're all naked. I said, I can see they're naked and they're running around. He said, well, do something. I said, me do something, you do something. And he ran around the pool, an elderly gentleman frustrated, yelling at people as they mocked him and laughed at him and continued to jump up and down. And I saw more naked body parts that evening than I have ever seen in my entire life. And probably at that era, if you were in 42nd Street, you couldn't see this many naked people at one time in Manhattan. And as the eventual festivities sort of died down and people began to try and retrieve different pieces of suits that may have belonged to them or may have belonged to someone else, I just sat there and had my Cheshire cat grin and said, this was one of the best days of my life. My first year in college, I was at Brown University. And freshman week, with my little freshman beanie, yeah, we wore them in those days, and my tie and jacket that I had to wear to the ratty, as we called the uh, refectory or the mess hall at night, the first week, all of the clubs on campus arrayed themselves in a big circle, and they loosed all us freshmen on them, sort of running from place to place. Now, I wasn't a sportsman, but when I saw the radio station, WBRU, I raced towards that. And in no time at all, I was the first freshman to actually get on the air. And by the end of that year, I had a slot, a two-hour show every Sunday night for the rest of the time I stayed at Brown. And it was fantastic. I liked it so much that by the end of freshman year, I decided I'm going to stay up here on the air all summer. Why should I leave? What a great thing it was. Of course, didn't pay. So I had to look for a job. So here I was in my little apartment on Benefit Street, on the second floor above a Ted's Big Boy restaurant, with the outline of little Ted holding his hamburgers, flashing on, off, on, off, on, off, all night, 
with my mattress on the floor and the clouds on the sunrise painted behind them and my enormous speakers facing me so big that people didn't even realize they were speakers. But I had to get a job. So, of course, I looked in what was then the place, the Providence Journal, and answered an ad along with a bunch of other brownies for a little office downtown where we were put in the room and educated in sales. Sales of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And I thought to myself, who would not want to have the Encyclopedia Britannica? It's an opening to a world. And the way I was supposed to sell it was with this little flip chart. Nothing fancy in those days. No computers. And the Encyclopedia Britannica, as big as it was, as many volumes as it was, offered the utmost in education. So I was taught to flip through this flip chart and slowly read the pre-prepared sales pitch, word for word, sort of pointing out the words as I went, pausing, flipping it over, and then going through the entire thing, looking up invariably at this parent with eager eyes, saying, now, Wouldn't that be good for your son or daughter? But mostly, we were in rather underprivileged areas. People found this by going through the backs of magazines and clipping out this little coupon and mailing it into the office in Providence where they would be assigned to one of us. Well, I thought, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to I'm not going to go through this rote. I'm just going to look them in the eye and explain to them what a world was opening to them. What a wonderful thing it was to have an encyclopedia in the home. And then of course when we were done, not only did you have to choose the encyclopedia, the type of paper, the type of print, but the type of binding And then when you get to the punchline at the end, how much does it cost? The look of horror on these people's faces. Well, I didn't last very long. I wasn't great at it. No wonder. Two, three weeks, I was back at square one when a friend of mine said, hey, you know, he had also stayed over at the radio station. We were still doing the shows, having grand old time, he said, hey, I'm applying for a job in a carnival. Great opportunity. Travel around New England, learn all sorts of cool stuff, stay with the carnies. It's going to be wonderful. I figured, give it a try. So down we went to the carnival, which was parked on a lot on the edge of Providence, and talk to this somewhat disreputable owner. I got assigned to the booth with teddy bears. There were three lines of teddy bears stepped up behind me, and all you had to do was take 
one of the little ropes, one of the little pieces of string that was attached to the teddy bear, pull it, and that teddy bear would jump up and someone would win the teddy bear. Or another teddy bear, just like it. Well, I thought that was good. I mean, I counted the strings. The odds were 53 to 1. I said, hey, this is great. You know, I'll just let the little kids, the adults, go and pull this little string, which was strung above my head through a little ring in front of the booth where they all fell down in a big pile. So you basically had 53 strings in a little cluster in front of you. And depending upon whether you paid a quarter or a dollar or five bucks or whatever, you got to pull as many strings as you wanted. And I thought, well, that was pretty cool. Okay, I accepted the job, and I came back the next day. My friend was working on one of those rides with a, um, a good old boy from Tennessee. And I learned later in the day that the good old boy from Tennessee had just been let out of jail. <laughs> and when asked, what were you in for? said, oh, killing somebody. Well, well, made my friend a little uneasy, but he stuck with it. You know, it was easy. Just uh, strap the kids in, press the button, let the thing go around and around. Unstrap the kids, give them back to your parents, collect the tickets. Just fine. No problem. So I was there, day or two, day or three, all these people pulling strings, never really getting a teddy bear to jump up. And the reason for that was that, of course, you want to let people know it's a real game and that the teddy bears can jump up. So what you do is, for the teddy bear that jumps up, with all these 53 strings going above my head in a horizontal direction, one of the strings was looped down, so it hung a little bit lower. And all I had to do was pull that string, make that teddy bear jump up. That was fine, until somebody tried to pull a string in the front. And, of course, all it did then was let up the slack in the teddy bear. And they never jumped. So by the third or fourth day, I was getting a little bit antsy and figuring the odds and that, you know, I mean, look, I didn't want to chip these little kids out of money. So what I did after I pulled the little teddy bear up was unlooped it. And then the odds were only 53 to 1. And lo and behold, in that day, a couple of kids actually won teddy bears. Well, what did I know? That wasn't the point of the game. <laughs> it wasn't the point of my game. It was the point of the game for my boss, who was pretty gruff. And he chewed me out. And I just hit him with, hey, listen, boss, you know, 53-1 odds, you're still going to make out. 
And we argued for a while and argued, and eventually he let me go. I said, I can't have you, you know. This is, this is not what we're doing here. But my friend, he stuck it out. I was disappointed, but I just couldn't live with myself if I had stayed with the carnival. My friend did. And about a month later, I ran into him, having moved to two other locations. And it turned out he had to leave, too, because one night he came back to his hotel room, found his boss waiting in his bed, and I was really happy that it wasn't me. Life is a masquerade. So there I am on Nassau Street in Lower Manhattan. My boyfriend is going to stop by with some bureaucratic work friends to say hello. I told him I would be out front announcing the opening of Shoe Town. I see him turn the corner as I slowly make my way in his direction. A look of apprehension crosses his face, and I watch as he guides his new pals down a side street. Well, I certainly couldn't run after him, since I was squeezed into a hot pink tube of spandex down to my ankles, which belled out at the base so my feet could only shuffle a few inches at a time. My arms and torso are confined inside a huge hot pink bowl-shaped contraption topped with bubble wrap and a straw. An artificial strawberry was strapped to the top of my head, jauntily tipped to one side. I was a strawberry daiquiri, announcing the opening of a shoe store. Could I really blame him for taking a detour? But this is the beginning of my life as a masquerader. Sure, I could work in a restaurant, be a personal trainer, be an extra on soaps and films, which I was and I did. But here was the opportunity for me to have the starring role in any musical the Shussel brothers chose to play their eyes. Dennis and Bernie provided the costumes, transportation, gigs, and paychecks. And this wonderfully eclectic group of fellow performers provided the talent for hours of entertainment on and off the stage. It was the 80s. Big hair, big productions, pretense, and masquerade ruled the scene. Yes, we had to dance to Van Halen's Jump and Cool in the Gang sing and Celebration 24-7. But being an actor and dancer with questionable singing skills, I was able to play the leads in Phantom of the Opera, West Side Story, Cats, Chicago, 
Chorus Line and 42nd Street, I mean, you name it, happily lip-syncing my way into the future. We got to travel from New York to Atlantic City, Aspen, LA, San Francisco, Honolulu, and beyond. We would perform at corporate events, fundraisers, casinos, and galas, moving beyond our humble beginnings at bar mitzvahs, and yes, shoe stores. However, those bar mitzvahs, they provide the best window into a period run amok. For instance, a bar mitzvah service had just ended, and I had to make a phone call. Remember, no cell phones. I was directed to a phone booth, which was located in the lobby of the synagogue. There I find the father of the bar mitzvah boy and all his friends crammed into the phone booth, snorting cocaine. Another time, I was encouraged by the party planner to flap my tail with a little more enthusiasm as I lay strewn across the center of the buffet table dressed as a mermaid, coconut shells intact, surrounded by a raw bar of oysters, shrimp, mussels, and clams. And here I was trying to be subtle and not overact. Oh, I remember being chased and pinched by a predatory pack of 13-year-old boys while I innocently just circulate during cocktail hour in that defenseless strawberry daiquiri getup. Never mind the fear I felt when I am selected to be the Golden Candle Opera centerpiece. First, two pedestals are stacked on top of each other, not attached, mind you. Then I am hoisted onto this double pedestal by all the jacked up Long Island roadies because I can't bend my knees. I am constrained in this gold lame cylinder of a dress. Standing in high heels, legs shaking, arms extended out to the side, I hold gothic, tassel-covered candle operas in each hand, while balancing one on my head, all lit, of course. A smoke machine spews smoke all around me as drunken couples cavort below. Oh, God forbid someone knocks into my precariously stacked pedestals, or there's a fire, presumably started by me. I'm stuck. Now, In order to test out these costumes, we all ride the graffiti-covered subways to the meatpacking district. This is pre-Highline, Whitney, and upscale restaurants when it was truly a meatpacking district. Stepping over colorful crack vials, we enter the building, shivering because it's a huge refrigerator. We pass the hanging slabs of beef, and climb the stairs to visit Robin, the costume designer, a bleached blonde, always clad in spandex and boots, and try on his magical creations, or torturous contraptions, depending on your point of view. We had just been hired to perform at a huge New York City political affair. So Robin had designed the typical Statue of Liberty, a taxi, and Twin Towers. Remember those? 
But to set the scene, he wanted to greet the guests with the Brooklyn Bridge. So, on the evening of the event, Jojo and I are outside, standing on the pedestals, our steel blue chiffon dresses blowing in the breeze. But we can barely stand up straight because a huge suspension bridge is strapped to our back and shoulders. Once the guests were all inside, we quickly change, and I am a New York City parking meter. Next thing I know, I'm back on the pedestals dancing between Mayor Koch and the Queensboro president, Donald Manis. <laughs> the next morning, I find our photo splashed across the pages of the New York Post. The caption underneath read, Koch, Manis, and unidentified parking meter woman dance the night away. The article accuses Manis of orchestrating a huge kickback scheme involving the New York City Parkings Violation Bureau. Who knew? I always wondered if Donald Manis appreciated the irony of dancing with a parking meter that fateful night. But we'll never know since he committed suicide several weeks later. Crazy, right? But as crazy as that period was, the glitz, false eyelashes, and glitter, sharing those times with such lovable and generous human beings made it bearable and extremely memorable. Our wedding album includes two friend group photos. Yes, my boyfriend eventually accepted me as a strawberry daiquiri, among other things. One photo shows our wonderful lifelong friends elegantly posed around us. The other is of my La Masquerade friends, strewn across the frame, hanging off the sofa, draped on top of each other, wrapped in my dress, biting my foot a big, tangled, exuberant mess. And that's how I remember the 80s. Those wild, extravagant times were messy. And as some of my friends mysteriously start getting sick, the mess got messier. Alan, the guy biting my foot in the wedding photo, was one of those friends. No one could do hotel hall runway like my beautiful friend, Alan. He was fabulous. He was a classically trained dancer, gifted actor, and performer. Impeccable technique. A wry sense of humor. One arch of his eyebrow or a tilt of his head could send you into stitches. We all loved being in his company. And as we sat in Alan's hospital room, we tried to comprehend how our resident nymph could just sit there in a pool of urine, wasting away in his hospital chair, skeletal. IV dripping, fading away, frightened and uncertain, 
as we all were, trying to figure out what AIDS was. How can you catch it? And more importantly, how can you get rid of it? The nurses would run in and out of his room wearing face masks and gloves. We were all afraid to touch. I was afraid to hug him goodbye. The next day, I had to drive upstate for some reason or another. And while I'm listening to the radio, this song comes on that I had never heard before. And I was surprised because it was by Linda Ronstadt, who I listened to all the time. But I didn't know this song. I'll never forget the lyrics. So goodbye, my friend. I know I'll never see you again. But the time together through all the years will take away these tears. It's okay now. You can go now. Goodbye, my friend. And I just started crying and couldn't stop. And then I pulled off at the nearest gas station and called my closest La Masquerade friend, Scott. And before I even had a chance to ask, he told me. Alan had just died an hour ago. The party was over. You can see the panel we made for Alan if you ever visit the Ace Memorial Quilt. in the state of Idaho, and um, it might be the Idaho you're thinking of is mountains and beautiful trees and babbling brooks and ski resorts. That isn't the Idaho I'm from. I am from a valley that is surrounded by barren hills, and it is so dry that they nicknamed it the Jawbone Flats. The town is supported by a paper mill that drizzles smog out over the town that kind of comforts it 
like a smog snuggie. And if you're lucky, your first pet will be a donkey named Trigger. I didn't come from a very wealthy family. My parents worked hard, my mom was a nurse, my dad was a big engine diesel mechanic. But when it came time to go to college, they got together enough money to send me up to the University of Idaho, where I went through Rush and pledged a sorority. What I found out when I was there is that what you do when you're in a sorority is you go hang out at the fraternities. So I was there a lot. So one day when I was there, I looked up and saw this guy looking my way, and he looked exactly like Hugh Grant, well, sort of. And I thought, wow, I want to go talk to this guy. My girlfriend and I walk over there, and I had a really interesting way of flirting with people back then, which was I would start kind of snide and insulting comments with them. And I began to do that with him, and he responded in kind. And this went on for a while. And a relationship was born. And we had this relationship go on for a couple months. We became great friends. And when I lost the freshman 40, we actually started dating. <laughs> and summertime was coming. Everyone was making plans. And I haven't told you much about Mr. Hugh Grant yet, but he comes from a really wealthy Southern California family. His dad was the leading hand surgeon at the time. His mother was the Rose Bowl queen, beautiful woman. And he was going to Southern California for an internship at a prestigious law firm for the summer, staying with some friends in Beverly Hills, friends of the family. Do I want to come? Ooh. Well, a little something about me. I've always known I was going to be discovered. This was my chance. I could feel it. I was going. And I'd been to Disneyland, so I knew all about California, and it was for me. <laughs> so we pack our bags, we get in the car, we drive down to Beverly Hills. They live in the flats by Cannon Drive, Beverly Drive, Rodan Drive. And we drive up to this Spanish Mediterranean villa that is amazing with bougainvillea growing everywhere and Spanish tile flooring and staff running everywhere. They're having a big party that night. So we meet the landscapers and the people in the house and we meet the family and I see a kitchen with two sinks, one for washing dishes and the other for washing vegetables. I had never seen that before. And they lead us out to an all-glass pool house where we're going to be staying for the summer. Not a lot of privacy. There was a drum set to the left, there was some workout equipment on the right, and there was a blow-up bed in the middle where we're going to sleep. So we got settled in, and the next morning my boyfriend went off to his prestigious job and left me behind without a car to look for a job in Beverly Hills. Up to this point, I've had a couple jobs. One was at Kentucky Fried Chicken. The other one was a delivery girl in a Napa, art, Napa parts car that you drive around and deliver headgear to engineers or people. And I got dressed, and I had to find a job on foot down Rodeo Drive in the Chanel boutiques, the Yves Saint Laurent boutiques, the Ferrari dealerships. Wasn't having much luck. Ended up at Robinson's May, which is a lot like Macy's, and they took me immediately. I was going to be a floater. The big problem there was that you had to wear a dress or a skirt every day to work. And I had packed a skirt. I had a lot of shorts and some bathing suits. I was going to California for the summer, but I had one skirt. And this was going to be okay because I was going to be a floater. No one would know I was wearing the skirt over and over again, so I wasn't too worried about that. I worked there for about a week, and I noticed that on the schedule, I'm going to be in women's wear for two days in a row. This is a problem. I have been reading Cosmopolitan now for a long time, and you do not wear the same thing twice, or let someone see you in it at least twice. I'm panicking a little. I get out everything that I bring, 
and I'm looking over my clothes to see what I can wear the second day in women's wear, and I have one other option. And I decided to take it because I can't wear this black skirt again. But it was pretty. It was my shiny pink taffeta prom dress with a lace kind of apron overlay on the shoulders. And it was beautiful. And if you could have seen me, it probably looked like someone had picked Laura Ingalls up from Little House on the Prairie and kind of dropped her in 1980s Beverly Hills. I start walking through Beverly Drive, Rodeo Drive, Canada Drive on my way to work. I start feeling pretty good. It's swishy and it's comfy and it's kind of cool because it's taffeta. It's not hot. And I go to work and a lot of people are smiling at me and I start feeling great. You know, I went down there to be discovered. And I go to, into the women's department and I'm working and people are smiling at me and pretty soon my manager comes up and she says, hey, there's been a little change in plan. We're going to put you in a new department today. What's that going to be? You're going to be in prom dress. Well, this is great. I'm in a prom dress, so we go over, and I'm working in prom dresses, and it's a great day because a lot of moms are coming up to me saying, I'm looking for a dress just like that for my daughter. Where did you get that? I'm like, oh, it's mine, but you can't get them anymore because they're sold out, and they don't have them here. I felt really special. The day goes on. It's the end of the day, and I get picked up from my boyfriend, who is mortified that I am in this prom dress. I had too much pride to tell him I had no money, and I had only one skirt. So he kindly, graciously took me in and bought me a couple outfits, and that crisis was now averted. So I'm back at work, maybe a week later, and I'm in the men's department this time, still floating around, and I'm with my friend Venus, who I went through training with. And she's all up in arms because there was a contest at the store to win a $500 shopping spree. Well... Who needs it more than the workers? But the workers weren't allowed to sign up for the shopping spree. So she is just having a tiz. And of course I needed it. So I got on the tiz page with her. And we were back and forth. And this woman was standing there. She's a very attractive, older woman. She must have worked in the next department over. She was in her 50s or 60s. Kind of an angrier looking Joy Behar. She was standing there. And we were trying to engage her and bring her in the conversation. And she kept saying, I really think you girls need to get back to work. You need to get on to do what you were doing. And we're like, why don't you go back to your department? We are, you know, we are up in arms here. We have to wear skirts every day. We can't enter the contest to buy more clothes. We're really having it. She gave it to us. We gave it to her. She walked away. End of the day is coming. We get an announcement that the store manager is going to give an announcement at the end of the day. Can we all stay late and listen to her? So we're gathered around at the end, and we're looking up at the escalator. She always... I guess comes down the escalator for announcements. And we look up and there's the angry Joy Behar coming down the escalator because she is the store manager that we told off earlier in the men's department. I hate to tell you folks, but my days at Robinson's were over. I was taken off the schedule. Uh, not too long after that, my boyfriend and I parted ways. And I did end up having a love affair with Los Angeles for 14 years, where I was discovered by my husband and moved east. Thank you. <laughs> Henry David Thoreau has a saying, beware of any venture requiring new clothes. In my case, it was new shoes. I was already a mother of three children by the time I was 20. I wanted those children very badly because within my career goals of how I was going to earn a living, I would have my children young. And I was already a published poet. So the kids would 
nap and I would be in the garret writing the poems. And then when the kids went to school, I'd already have had close to four years with their upbringing. I would be able to write full time in the garret. I had no idea how you made money doing that, but it didn't matter, did it? I volunteered at the local offices of the Democratic Party, and it was 1968. I volunteered and I wound up writing speeches. I volunteered in the afternoons when my neighbor, who had six kids, was able to let my kids come and play. I needed to have nice shoes. I charged a pair of shoes at Bob Smith's shoe store in New Rochelle. I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have an allowance. I realized I could put it on a charge account. We were local. My husband went nuts. He wanted me to return the shoes. I didn't return the shoes. We got divorced. I agreed to take $400 a month, not in alimony, because I thought, I don't want to be involved with this person forever. I'll take it in child support, and he will pay the mortgage on the house that was agreed upon, and I will get a job. I didn't know what kind of job, but I looked around. I saw all kinds of things I could do all kinds of places. I stared at young women in stores. I could work in a store. There was a Lord and Taylor nearby. Forget that I didn't have a car, but I, I was fine. June, 1968. I go over to my friend who takes care of the kids who has six of her own, as I previously mentioned, and it's June 6, 1968. And there are a bevy of her oldest son's friends outside. They're all 18 and 19 years old. I am 23. One of them is strumming a 12-string guitar. And he's singing April, Come She Will, the Simon and Garfunkel song. He has such a beatitude that I am immediately smitten. First time in my life I ever remember being smitten. First, by the slope of his shoulders. He was a swimmer and his body tapered into a V. Second, by his fabulous amber-colored curly hair. Third, by the dazzling Irish smile. I mean, a Kennedy smile. The news that Martin Luther King in, about, in April had us talking. And on June 6th, 1968, Robert Kennedy was assassinated while a bevy people my age and every age sat there. Finn, 
was the young man's name. He put the guitar down and we all wept. I believe he might have played Kumbaya. The next weekend when he came home from Villanova University, where he was a student, he came to my house. We fell in love for sure there. When his mother found out that he was having a relationship with the Jewess, that was me, who lived on the hill, she told him she wasn't going to pay his tuition. You know, when you're 19 and you're in love, and when you're in love with somebody like me who says, screw it, we don't care about school. We're in love. He didn't care about the threat. He wound up living with me. And now he could babysit and I could get a job. It wasn't so easy. I learned that there was a bookkeeping position open at the Acme Travel Ski Tour Company. They sold ski tour packages that included the skis, the shoes, the boots, the bindings, which were, of course, death traps, lodgings, food, a ski instructor, the ski lift tickets, and a great weekend for 40 desperate women from the telephone company. But Finn could go skiing, and he had been a skier elegant skier. He'd gone to school in Switzerland. I was no daredevil. I needed the training wheels on my bike until I was 11. I was that frightened of speed. But this was our new life. The children's father took him on the weekend. We got on a rickety yellow bus. We started to to learn, I started to learn to ski at a place called West Mountain, which had gentle slopes and some advanced slopes. I learned on the J bar. I learned how to hold on to the J bar, not to kill myself just standing there, and come down a gentle slope doing the snowplow. It took me almost a whole season to learn that. And I was proud. And Finn said he wanted me to graduate to the chairlift and to come down the mountain with him, shushing, as they call it, to learn to do a stem Christie to turn and have the snow puff up in our face. He bought me very good skis for Christmas, vocal zebra skis. They were zebra stripes with a green epoxy bottom that I knew was going to go down very fast. I got to Whiteface Mountain, dangerous mountain at Lake, near Lake Placid. And that was where the chairlift was going to initiate me to being this downhill racer. I got on the chairlift. My knees were knocking, if your knees can knock with skis. The terror I felt was like that of a patient about to be anesthetized during a dangerous surgery. 
I'm counting backwards and I have a feeling I will never wake up. I'm on the chairlift. Terror overcomes me about midway up the mountain. But I see a little house, a little white house. I think, oh, I'm going there. I can get off. They'll help me and I'll ski down from there. I don't have to stay on this chairlift. Uh, Wrong. But I did jump off the chairlift with my skis. And I landed in a deep gully. Not far from the little house, but deep, deep enough to be, it was like a pit, almost like a grave. And I was up to my chest in dirt and mud with people yelling at me from the chairlift. What are you doing down there? I crawled. I took my skis off. I climbed out of the gully. I grabbed the skis. I pushed them in front of me till I got to the little white house. The little white house, I knocked on the door and some very handsome, almost Finn-like handsome guys opened the door. They were the guys who ran the chairlift. They had those winches and electronics and gears and they were stunned. And no, you cannot get back on the chairlift and go down, they told me. How are you going to get over the gully? They got a ski-mobile, and I was taken by ski-mobile as if I were an injury down to the lodge where Finn was waiting with a glass of brandy. Next time, he said, I'm going with you. I am going to sit next to you and do the right thing. There was no next time. I got fired from the bookkeeping job. The accountant said the books didn't balance. I looked at him and I said, you know, most of the time they do. Sometimes I can't, the dollar doesn't add into the ins and outs. I put it in the adjustment column. None of that was okay. And when I lost my job, I lost the perk of being able to go skiing for a weekend. And Finn, lost the perk of being a ski instructor for which he made a few bucks, but he got to go skiing as much as he wanted. And he had all the same things, the lodgings. Our money issues became a slippery slope. And we we kind of mustered through lovingly until we realized that we couldn't make it unless each one of us had a full-time job. I got a full-time job and he stayed home for about a year. He worked at odd jobs as a carpenter and then he got a full-time job for the railroad and his job took him to Plymouth, Massachusetts. It was a reality time. We could not be downhill racers. We could not live on $400 a month. Our beautiful mirage, our snowbound loveliness had to come to an end.
Stay. 